So Genesis 3, chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the second reading is Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, verses 1 to 10. And this follows um, an explanation of uh, Christ and his characteristics and his role seated in heaven interceding for us, and then the contrast of man and his condition. Uh, Chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming days he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Um, And uh, I'm really excited about uh, the subject we're thinking about this morning. I'd say, um, with all honesty, there's not a subject in the whole world that I'd rather speak on. Uh, that gets me more excited than this one. And I don't think there's a subject in the whole world that's more important for any of us to hear than this one. Um, so I pray that it will be a good uh, morning as we think together a little bit about the Reformation. Um, so let's pray and, and ask for God's help because this may be a subject that's very unfamiliar to some here um, and for others perhaps more familiar. But we need God's help to understand um, what it means for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel the good news of how through Jesus Christ we can be in a right relationship with the God who made us. And we thank you that as we read there, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works, so that we cannot boast. And Lord, I pray for each of us that you would remind us afresh of all that this means. I pray for any who are here today who have not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that you would speak into their hearts and show them the liberation and joy that comes with knowing God. And I pray for others who know and trust in Jesus that you would strike our hearts afresh with the wonder of the gospel as we think about 
the wonderful history and how you have been at work in your church down through the centuries. So please bless us this morning, I pray. Amen. So we're going to think a little bit about the Reformation. As, as well as he said, on the 31st of October this year, it will have been 500 years since the uh, Protestant Reformation in Europe. It's a hugely significant time in church history. Uh, if you've never heard of the Reformation, don't worry. Um, others here will, have, will know far more than I do about the Reformation. Um, but on that kind of spectrum, I'm going to angle it more this morning down this end for the folk who know very little about the Reformation or perhaps never heard. Um, trying to give us a bit of an introduction so we can understand something of our history because the reformation is absolutely crucial if you want to understand um, the church the beliefs of this church if you want to understand um, the history of where your faith has come from and it'd be very unwise of us to be ignorant of our background so i hope that it'll be helpful uh, by way of an introduction and then we're going to pick up the theme of the reformation um, in october for three sunday evenings where i'm going to look in a bit more detail at certain aspects of the reformation so do come along to those evenings um, or listen online Uh, But I hope it will be helpful for us. Uh, Think of the Reformation. Think of the word Reformation, the reformation. The whole purpose of the Reformation was reforming the worldview of Christians particularly, helping people think about who am I, uh, where have I come from, what's my purpose in this world, and particularly reforming a worldview about the gospel and what Christians believe. So it was a hugely influential period in church history, um, which as well as you said at the beginning has has made a huge difference, uh, and without which we wouldn't be here today believing what we believe. Uh, When I was at school, I thought history was boring, and the reason I thought it was boring is because I thought it wasn't relevant to me today. And I didn't get into history until um, I went uh, to university, and I started reading then, and I started appreciating where I had come from. And when I understood where I'd come from and how a legacy that's laid before me affects who I am today, then suddenly this subject that was really dull to me came alive, uh, and ever since I've increasingly appreciated what's come before. So if you're a person who, like me, thinks church history is boring, um, I sat through a lot of boring history lessons at school, and I'm going to try very hard to not let this be one. Um, but raise your hand if you get, if you get bored, and I'll, uh, I'll stop. Three of the biggest questions we could ever ask, which the Reformation helps us to ask, are these, the the questions on the screen. What does the Bible say? Do I trust it? And how does it shape the way I live? And these are absolutely essential questions, and they were questions that the Reformation forced people to think uh, 500 years ago. And these are questions that have been crucial all the way through church history, and this is the reason why. Uh, The reading, the first reading from this morning, from Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent comes along and tempts Adam and Eve and uses the phrase... Did God really say? And the reason that was so, so dangerous is because it was a twisting of the word of God. And it was very subtle. And that's where the real danger comes. Um, The word heresy in our language comes from a Greek word that literally means to choose. So when you think about heresies, which are beliefs that are proclaimed that are false... Heresies are all about choosing to believe in God as we want him to be, as opposed to how he has revealed himself in the Bible. And all heresies are essentially choices to reject how God has revealed himself. And where the serpent comes along in Genesis chapter 3 and seeks to change and challenge the way that the first people thought about God and what he had said, ever since then there have been more and more heresies in the church. And so the Reformation was a period of history where... Certain people, as we saw in the children's video earlier, stepped up and said, enough, there are certain truths we need to stand on, and even if it costs us our lives, we're prepared for it. 
So a little bit of history just on the background of, of Europe. This is the 16th century, so 1500s onwards. We're in Europe, and it's a period of time where kind of superstition, magic, and death were all the vogue, and everyone was talking about them. These are a couple of the images that would have been branded around in the 16th century, pictures of hell, and you can see how gruesome they are. Really, really gruesome. But this is the sort of thing people were thinking about and the sort of pictures that were being painted. There was lots of witchcraft and uh, magic, black magic, nasty things like that. So it's a, it was a very difficult period in, in, in history. And the reason it was a challenge to the church is because the culture represented by some of these pictures was beginning to get into the church and was beginning to affect the way that people were thinking and what they believed. Uh, there was lots and lots of or a growth in prosperity in Europe at the time. So lots of the people within the church were making lots of money by leading churches. So the churches became very, very corrupt. And some of the clergy became incredibly immoral. And what happened is there was an increasing distance, people believed, between God and people. There was this understanding and false understanding that normal people can't have access to God. And so the priest would sit in the middle and perform a kind of intermediary role to speak on behalf of people. The problem with this is it completely replaces the work of Jesus, who is the great high priest. So there were certain things going on in the life of the church that were utterly horrific, that undermined the Christian gospel as you and I would know it. There was things like penance, which was this idea of confession of sin, which was helping contribute towards your salvation. Now, if you've ever heard, uh, most here have heard the gospel as according to the Bible, there's nothing that you can do to contribute to your salvation, nothing. And yet people were teaching, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, that there were things that you could do to make God love you more and to make your salvation more assured. There was also false teachings of a, of a thing called purgatory, this idea that when you die, you go to this place called purgatory where you're cleansed of all your sin before you then enter into heaven. And purgatory was a false teaching that many people bought into. I'll give you one example. This is a famous phrase from the 16th century referring to um, what's called indulgences, which is where people were selling, um, effectively selling you time off purgatory. Uh, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, is how the sort of quip went. And that chap on the screen there is Johann Tetzel, who was a German friar. And that's an indulgence market. And what was happening is people were selling these indulgences on markets and saying, you give me money and I will effectively give you time off purgatory. Terrible. And remember, 16th century, infant mortality rates are really high. Lots and lots of children and babies are dying. How tempting is it, therefore, for parents to believe that they can buy time off purgatory for their young loved ones? And so you can see how the whole thing grows. And these are all false teachings which have got into the church and affecting what people believe. But forget all that detail. The thing that really matters is ultimately what was going on is that the word of God was being undermined. People were not believing or trusting in who God was as revealed in scripture. They were starting to believe in what the church was teaching and what some of these false teachers were heralding. And so it became a period where there was increasing tension between Roman Catholic Church and what became later known as the Protestantism. And we're going to think about that in a moment. Well, this is the central issue of the Reformation. This is probably the question. And this is a huge question because at different times in our life, we will all ask this question. How can I know God and be right with him? It's a hugely important question. Uh, And the answer to it really, really matters. It's the question that the jailer, if you remember, in Acts chapter 16, asked when God miraculously broke Paul and Silas out of the prison. 
and he falls down on his knees before them and he declares, what must I do to be saved? And the Reformation addressed and answered that question uh, in real clear terms. And here's the problem. The Roman Catholic Church at the time was teaching that salvation was God's grace, his gift to you, plus human effort. And so things like penance were one of the things that you could do to kind of contribute to your salvation. But the Bible's teaching is that salvation is by grace alone, and you cannot do anything to add to your salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing that we can do to make God, to to earn our salvation. Grace is a gift that a loving God lavishes upon us. And so what the Reformation was doing was helping to reform people's worldview, helping them to come back to the scriptures, to come back to what God has said. And people were fighting for gospel truth and were prepared to go to great lengths to do it. So as we look at some of this today, we're going to see how certain truths were upheld, how other truths were squashed, and how people with great vigor and at great cost to themselves stood for gospel truths, which we need to stand for in our culture today. One of the big themes of the Reformation was repentance. So Martin Luther himself said this at the beginning of his 95 Theses, which I'll talk about in a minute. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It wasn't about going to confession and confessing sins to a priest. It was about a whole life of surrender to a living God. And Martin Luther helped us to think a bit more about that. Uh, So would you turn to our second reading, um, Ephesians chapter 2. This is a very uh, well-known reading. It won't be a surprise to people that we're turning here. I want just to walk us through really simply and clearly what the Christian gospel is. Uh, And Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful picture of it. And then off the back of that, I want to do a little case study and show us one of the people who was really influential in helping these truths uh, spread all across Europe. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at uh, completing these sentences on the screen. I once was, through Jesus I have been. Ask the question, what is grace? And then ask the question, why have I been offered life? And these are the most important questions any human being could ever ask. Here's the first one. I once was. And without needing to read it all, can you see in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, I've highlighted the key words. The gospel says that I was once dead. It's speaking of spiritual death. I was once spiritually dead. And because of that, I was deserving of God's wrath. Not because he's some tyrant in heaven with a big stick. He wants to beat me every time I mess up. But because God, who's so committed to what is perfect and right and true, has to punish wrongdoing. He can't just let it go because it matters too much to him. This is a picture of my heart before I came to know Jesus Christ. And it's a picture of your hearts before you did. The Bible says really clearly we were spiritually dead and deserving of God's wrath. But then the gospel is good news. Through Jesus I have been. And here verses 4 to 7 we see. And to summarize it there in bold yellow. I have been saved. The gospel which we treasure in this church. Which we preach every week. The gospel is all about how God has come into this world in the person of his son to rescue us because he's so passionate about a relationship with the people he's made and he's not prepared to let people go through Jesus I have been saved this is a a picture of being made spiritually alive and being rescued so what is grace 
a really famous verse or two, uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace is a Bible word that means gift. And it's a gift that God extends to every person. A gift of forgiveness, a gift of being in a relationship with him. A gift of no longer needing to define our own identity or need to prove ourselves. Needing to do something so God accepts me. But him just saying, I accept you and love you just as you are. And my arms are open wide. Will you come home? Because I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. That's why grace is so wonderful and should be something that always captivates your heart and you never become too familiar with. Because grace is the most extraordinary thing ever. And the last question, why have I been offered life? Well, notice what happens after I learn about God's rescue of me. He goes on to say, you and I, if we've put our trust in Christ, are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The reason God has offered me forgiveness and given me my life is that I might give my life back to him in service. It's one of the things we thought about during the short talk at the wedding yesterday for Cal and Rebecca, encouraging them to use the gifts that God had given them to serve each other in their marriage and to serve those around them. Because giving our life away to other people is where joy comes from. And these are some of the truths that people in the Reformation fought for. I once was spiritually dead and facing judgment. Through Jesus, I've been made spiritually alive and been rescued. What is grace? It's God's gift of forgiveness and new life. And why have I been offered this life? So that I might live to serve the God who made me. So what I'd like to do now is... Uh, paint a picture, tell a bit of a story of one man who's probably the most famous man involved in the Reformation. He's by no means the only person who's significant, but in in many ways he sort of epitomizes and summarizes all that was going on in this period of history. Uh, Many here will have heard of him, Martin Luther. I just want to look at his life and look at how he stood for some of the truths of the gospel, which I've just explained. So there he is, Martin Luther. He's a German man. He was a son of a miner. Don't confuse him with Martin Luther King. 20th century, that was a bit later on. The man we're talking about is Martin Luther. He served as a monk from 1505 to 1515. But people described him as a sin-tortured monk. Martin Luther was a man who, with real integrity, was desperately trying to find peace with God. Uh, So that question we put up on the screen earlier, the most important question any of us could ask, how can I know God and be right with him? And that's the exact question that this young monk was asking. Uh, to quote from something he wrote I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say this if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery it should have been me all my monastic brothers who knew me will testify to this I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading and other good works had I remained a monk much longer Martin Luther, with real sincerity, wanted to punish himself and, in a sense, purge all the sin from himself because he was desperate to have peace with God. He would refuse food and nearly killed himself through not eating and drinking. He'd refuse blankets in the depths of winter. He'd spend endless hours whipping himself, trying to punish himself, hoping that this sincerity would prove to God how much he cared. 
And maybe this way he'd find peace with God. And Martin Luther became completely overwhelmed by the judgment of God because he never had any peace. Was I right with God? Had I done enough? He never knew. And so, as it says on the screen, he became known as the sin-tortured monk. It's reported that one time he went to one of his confessors and confessed for six long hours. The confessor was left exhausted at the end as Martin Luther was trying to pour out his heart and trying in an attempt to get right with God. Listen to what he says. When I was a monk, I made a great effort to live according to the requirements of a monastic rule. Nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt and said, you haven't done this correctly. You weren't contrite enough. You admitted this in your confession. Therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak and troubled conscience with human tradition, the more uncertain, weak and troubled it continually made me. Here was a person who was striving to get peace with God. And the more he strove, the less peace he had because he never knew if he'd done enough. He never had certainty. Did God really love him? Would God forgive him? And isn't that true for so many of us and definitely so many people in our world? We can strive and strive and strive wanting to prove ourselves to God. And we never have certainty. And so what we need is God to speak to us and give us the certainty that we long for. And he does this in the scriptures. So Martin Luther's life goes on and in 1512 at the age of 26, he's invited to start lecturing at Wittenberg University. And he starts reading a guy called Augustine. He was an early church father who led the church in the early centuries. And he read something that Augustine had written, um, his commentary on the book of Romans and on the book of Galatians, two key books in the New Testament that explain the gospel. And what this did is it gave him a fresh understanding of the gospel. It totally reformed his worldview. And then in 1515, he read this and it changed his life. And it's the words that Wellesley read at the beginning of the service. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther came to understand that the way he got right with God was through accepting the gift that God was holding out to him, not through trying to be good himself. And when he came to understand this amazing truth, this is the words he spoke. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. They are the words of a man who was so liberated by the gospel, he needed no longer to strive to prove himself to God because he recognized there was a gift being held out to him and all he had to do was to take it and receive it for himself. And this became known as a kind of biblical phrase, justification, which the Apostle Paul uses in the scriptures many times. And think of justification in the sense of just as if I had never sinned. See, here's me. And I was made for a relationship with God and all of the filth of my heart where I've ignored God, done things my own way, sought to build an identity for myself. It's cut me off from God. And along comes Jesus Christ, the only one who's never done anything wrong. Perfect relationship with God. And all of the filth and mess of my heart is laid upon him. So that when God looks at me, it's just as if I'd never sinned. 
I have sinned. I do sin all the time. I reject God. I ignore him. But when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. And when he looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw me. And this swap took place. And it's an extraordinary truth. And Luther went on to say, justification is the thing, the truth on which the church stands and falls. And this is what he fought for and was ultimately prepared to give his life for. Justification is a kind of legal or forensic declaration by God. You have been forgiven. And when I look at you now, I see Jesus. And that's an astonishing truth that the God of the universe would give that to us, freely to us, but at great cost to himself. Well, two years later, on the 31st of October, 1517, and at the end of October this year, it will be 500 years to the day since this day, Luther, who became so convinced by everything that he'd learned and what God had done in his life, as we saw on the little video earlier, he went to the castle church in Wittenberg and he nailed to the castle wall, the the church uh, door, 95 theses. And they were essentially a kind of 16th century equivalent of a provocative blog. And he nails them to the front door and the desire of it was to provoke debate. He wanted the clergy of the time and some of the important people to read these 95 theses, which were statements that he wanted to defend. And he was aiming to kind of spark debate, get people thinking. And probably at the time, he never recognized just how significant these 95 theses were. This is what was said at the very top before he wrote them. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, that means explain it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology and ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and dispute them in that place. Therefore, he asked that those who cannot be present, uh, sorry, um, therefore he asked that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally should do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And then 95 statements which he sought to defend. 80 years before, Gutenberg's printing press had been designed. And so suddenly there was this ability to get written words printed and copied and spread. And so these 95 theses could spread across Europe very, very quickly. And more and more people came to understand something of what the Reformation was all about. And then in 1520, Luther wrote probably his most significant thing, his book called The Freedom of a Christian. And this book explained a Latin phrase, sola fide, faith alone. And in The Freedom of a Christian, he describes the gospel like this. He says, it's a bit like a king who takes in his hand a debt-ridden prostitute and unites with her in marriage. The prostitute could never become a queen in and of herself because of who she was. But the king took her by the hand, brought her into his palace, and she was made a queen. And he uses this little picture to describe the gospel because he says it's like Jesus Christ who comes and takes hold of people who've rejected him and ignored him and done things their own way. And he joins into a relationship with them. And Luther described this as the joyful exchange which I illustrated earlier with the Bible, a swap takes place when the king of the universe takes you and me by his hand and forgives us and welcomes us home. And the 95 Theses were really a summary of that truth and the book, The Freedom of a Christian. Last little bit of history then. A year later, 
The religious establishment, particularly the emperor, who was a Roman Catholic, Charles V, and the pope, didn't like what was going on because more and more people were becoming convinced by the truth of the gospel. And so in 1521, the Diet of Worms came. Now, it wasn't this kind of Diet of Worms. It wasn't a kind of 16th century version of Bear Grylls eating horrible food. The Diet is simply a gathering and uh, Worms, or it's pronounced Worm, is a place in Germany. It was a gathering in Germany between representatives of the Roman Empire. Charles V was there, the Roman Catholic Emperor. The Pope was there, and Luther was brought there. And the Emperor famously said to Luther, who he called to recant, the Emperor said, Luther, he will not make a heretic out of me. He hated Luther. He hated everything Luther stood for. And when Luther was asked to recant his faith in the Gospel... And everything he's written in his 95 theses, and this gets my heart going, and I love it. This is his defiance, where he stands for the living God. Luther famously said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I am bound by scripture. Thus, I cannot and will not recant. I can do no other. Here I stand, so help me God. He was so convinced by this that he was prepared to give up anything to fight for the truths within it because they had so changed his life. And you may be wondering, where does the name Protestant come from? Well, eight years later, starting in around 1529, the word Protestant was being used. And it was being used to describe people who followed Luther, who protested, hence the word Protestant, who protested against the outcome of the Diet of Worms. And protested against what was, uh, what was declared about Luther, that he couldn't continue to share this gospel faith. And people who, who didn't want this, these truths to be outlawed, protested and they became known as the Protestants. And that is where some of the frictions between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics came from. Now there's loads more that could be said. There's loads more of famous people involved in the Reformation. Uh, this, uh, that's, sorry, that's a picture of the Diet of uh, uh, Worm where Martin Luther's in the middle there with his Bible and you see some of the religious establishment accusing him uh, of, of teaching falsehood. But here are some of the other chaps, and we're not going to talk about them, but they've all got awesome names. Philip Melanchthon, who was a German and a peer of Luther. Uh, the guy in the middle has probably got the best name, Ulrich Zwingli. He was Swiss and he was also a peer of Luther. And then a bit later, John Calvin. Calvin was only eight years old when Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the uh, church door. But John Calvin, who was French, became famous in the Reformation. But what Luther, in a sense, started, and of course it started even before him, other men and other women took forward. And we'll think about some of them in some of the evenings coming up. But as I close, why ultimately does this all this matter? Because if you forget those names, you forget the dates, don't worry about all that. I can give you a printout if you're interested in following it up. That doesn't matter. What matters is why the Reformation matters. And what's on the screen describes why the Reformation matters. That little Latin phrase, sola fide, faith alone. And this was summarized in Luther's brilliant book, The Freedom of a Christian, and through the doctrine of justification on which Luther said, this is the truth on which the church will stand or fall. Why does this matter? Because you and I live in a culture where there is so much pressure all the time to self-justify. I need to prove myself. I need to earn people's um, view of me. I need to earn God's love of me. I need to pay my way. I need to be sorted. I can't be weak. I can get through. And the gospel just smacks us in the face and says, don't try and be something. 
Just be who you are and come to God who accepts you just as you are and wants to welcome you home and offer you forgiveness. So as I close, here are four little questions which maybe you could reflect on this week. Do you treasure the gospel? Particularly if it's become maybe quite familiar to you. Do you treasure it? Because if it wasn't for people like Martin Luther and other reformers that we're going to think about in a few weeks' time who gave their lives for these truths, we probably wouldn't be here today believing what we believe. So do you treasure the gospel and treasure everything that Jesus did for you? Because when he hung on the cross, he thought of you. And he thought of me. Second question, do you frequently frequently speak the gospel to yourself? Do you frequently tell yourself... I don't need to be good enough for God to accept me. And when I mess up, I can come back and find freedom in the cross of Christ. That's a message you have to keep telling yourself and telling people around you because we so frequently forget it. Thirdly, it might seem a silly question to put up, but do you believe the gospel? Do you really believe it? Because you need to believe it because it's a liberating truth that changes everything. And final question in terms of a response. Do you share the gospel? Because if you've come to understand what matters so, so much in the gospel, and if it's captivated your heart, then what more important thing could you ever do in your life than to give your life away now to help other people experience the freedom of a Christian, which is what Martin Luther came to understand for himself. On the way out, there's um, a copy of this, which we'd love as a gift to give to every person in the church, um, which just explains a bit more about the Reformation. It's a really easy read. There's some pictures and some things just to help us understand a bit more of the legacy of where we've come from. We'd love you to take one. And also in the Louvre, which is the church uh, news sheet, I've just put a, a, a two or three examples of helpful little books you might want to read if you want to dig a bit deeper. They're kind of introductory things for people who perhaps haven't heard much about the Reformation, but they're, they're brilliant books. And one of them is Martin Luther's A Freedom of a Christian which has obviously been translated into English and modernized. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book, which you won't be able to put down and will just captivate your heart with the gospel. So friends, as I close, let me just read really slowly this glorious truth from Ephesians chapter 2. And let's dwell on it as we finish our service together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is the truth on which the church stands and falls. And I pray that's captivated your heart, that you might serve God this week. Amen.